Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple II. Whether you're a longtime user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Hello and welcome to Open Apple, the Apple II podcast. This is episode 40 for October 2014. I am Quinn Dunkey, and with me as always is Mike McGinnis. How are you doing, Mike? Wow, 40. Man, this show is middle-aged. Yeah, gosh, it, uh, it the time flies. It feels like we've only done two and a half episodes. Well, one of us has only done two and a half episodes. It's <laughs> hoping you'd get that. It's been um, it's been an interesting ride, especially this year. But I, th- I think that everybody is pleased with with my new co-host. I get a lot of great emails saying, "Oh, we we miss Ken, but we love Quinn." So good job! Oh, so excellent! Yay, yay on well, not you. Yay on me for picking it. Oh, okay. clearly, yes, the credit is all yours. So, uh, so what's new with your Apple II? Anything exciting? Been kind of a quiet week. I, I've had to remind myself how to. Do a driver disc on an Apple III uh, for some hardware that somebody wanted, which is a, a very convoluted process. And if you'd like to learn the details of that, you can listen to Drop Three Inches, my other podcast that I do with Paul Hagstrom. Plug, plug, plug. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the scanner kind of gets some regular use here pretty much every day. I got every time I finish scanning something, I look over at the, the pile of stuff, and that seems to be getting larger instead of smaller, which seems counterintuitive. But uh, what about you, Quinn? What have you been up to? few things. Uh, well, you know, I've got a tip for you for your for your Apple III problems. Uh, oh, yeah? yeah? If you take a razor blade and uh, you scrape that last slash off of the, uh, where it says three there, just uh, scrape that last one off. I think you'll oh. I think you'll find it's a better computer then. Oh, wow. I see, I see what you did there. Uh, little humor. A little, yeah, little funny, funny. Little, little jabby jab at the Apple III. Uh-huh. Yeah. No, actually, I'm really enjoying Drop 3 Inches because it, it, <laughs> it is an, an, a neat computer that it's hard to find information on. So uh, I'm, I'm learning a ton every time I listen to one of your shows. So. And it's, it's fascinating. Though. I mean, the first couple uh, shows that I did with Paul, we were kind of not sure what we were going to talk about. And so it was sort of he and I rambling on and not really focusing as well as we should have and wondering what we we're going to talk about next time. But we've actually had a lot of content sort of been thrown at us recently. So we've got a bunch of interviews lined up and uh, Dave Adelini uh, dug up some audio for a conference that took place in 1987 that has not been heard since then. And Paul has been hard at work cleaning that up and uh, those sessions will be released as uh, episodes as well. So uh, suddenly we're, we're finding we have too much stuff, I think. That's awesome. That's a good problem to have. Uh, well, so this this has dropped two inches, so let's get back to that. Um, yeah, my Apple II exploits have been, my programming projects have been progressing. I'm making good progress there. Hopefully I'll have something to show people uh, for too long. Yeah, I'm doing a lot of talking and not a lot of walking at the moment. Trust me, it is coming. And uh, in preparation for that, I'm kind of at the point where I need to start testing on real hardware. So I've been uh, working on getting my 2C Plus up and running that I got at uh, Kansas Fest. Uh, mm-hmm. So I got the cabling in hand now. And I recently did something where I, I kind of felt like a chump, but uh, I actually uh, went online and ordered some floppy disks. And uh, wow. I, uh, yeah, I felt like sort of a chump because uh, on the one hand, I mean, when I first got my first hard drive, I was so glad to be rid of floppies forever. Uh, <laughs> so and here I am buying them again. So that was that was a strange experience. Uh, and on top of that, I, of course, it's a 2C plus. So I had to buy three and a half inch disks. And 
five years ago, who didn't have a mountain of those in the closet, right? And I guess mm. I was t- I'm too efficient about getting rid of crap that I won't need anymore. So I literally don't have one in my house. And I asked all of my friends and none of them have any, you know, at least that we're in driving distance. So, uh, yeah, I needed them for this weekend uh, in order to, to get this going. So I literally had no choice but to order some on Amazon. So thanks to Amazon Sunday delivery, they uh, arrived this morning. So I got to start working on that. So I have a, a box of shiny new floppy, uh, three and a half inch <laughs> floppy disks. The store that I ordered them from must be shocked every time they get an order for them at this point. It always amazes me when I find companies that are still producing stuff for these old computers, not directly, obviously, but Avery, for example, the the label company, you know, that makes thousands of different sizes and shapes of labels that you can stick on just about anything, uh, still makes five and a quarter inch floppy disk labels, and they're called five and a quarter inch floppy disk labels, and you can buy them just like with the rest of their stuff. There's, um, there's a stock number you can order, and they will send you a box of these labels, probably laughing a little bit as they pack it for you, but... Yeah, it's it's shocking. Yeah, that that is awesome. I, when I was Googling to try and find somewhere local where I could just go and buy these floppies that I needed, I found that. I found the uh, the staples down the street carries those labels. And uh, <laughs> I just I laughed and laughed. They didn't carry three-and-a-half-inch floppies, but they carried those labels. Uh, yeah, I had a good, uh, good chuckle about that one. Now, I heard that Veronica made another outing. Yeah, so this uh, this weekend was the uh, 10th anniversary of the blog called Hackaday. You know, I'm sure some of our audience probably reads that as well. It's just kind of a general blog about uh, hacking hardware and devices in your house and just any sort of hacking in general, uh, modifying things, building things, breaking stuff, fixing stuff, whatever. It's a fun blog. And they um, have posted over the years a few articles about my uh, Veronica computer that I showed at KFest. And came time for their 10th anniversary. They did kind of a a conference slash party thing. And they had uh, sessions and uh, talks and so on. And so they asked me to come and give a talk about that. So uh, I did that. It was local, so it was easy to do. Uh, I was out in Pasadena, and uh, I drove out there. And uh, yeah, I gave a quick talk. It was uh, a compressed version. You know, the talks were 30 minutes and with time for questions. So I ended up being 20 minutes. So I took kind of just took my KPS talk and crammed it down into 20 minutes. (laughs) It seemed to go over well. So uh, they actually uh, shot video of it as well. So uh, I can link to that in the show notes if people are interested. Although if anyone was at KFest, uh, they would have seen it. Uh, I suppose if you weren't at KFest and are interested, this might be worth watching just because it's sort of a sort of a reader's digest version of of the KFest talk. It's a nice recording. They had good equipment there. So I'll post it. Yeah, and if you weren't able to catch the KFest talk, I highly recommend the video. What my co-host has done here with uh, with Veronica is just amazing. Blows me away every time I see it. So. Aw, aw, shucks. And that's just to make sure that she comes back next month. Uh, yes, yes. The uh, the route to my loyalty is through my ego, apparently. So this month, uh, well, let's see. Last month we had uh, Gary Little on, and people really seemed to enjoy that. Hearing him talk about his days as an Apple II author and working at Apple, and then, then editing a Plus magazine went over really well. And, and this month we've got another great guest for you. So let's just get to the guesting. <laughs> The, the guesting? That sounds like a lesser-known M. Night Shyamalan movie. That's a thing. Come on. <laughs> Hi, this is Al Lowe, and you're listening to Open Apple? 
Soft Talk magazine was originally published from 1980 to 1984, and one of its many popular columns was a recurring piece by Roger Wagner. Roger's lessons were designed to teach Apple II users the ins and outs of 6502 assembly language in a friendly and easy-to-learn method. The column was so popular that when the original articles were gathered and republished as a book, it quickly became a bestseller and even today remains a highly regarded and often recommended starting point for hobbyists interested in going beyond the basics. See what I did there. Uh, it's very collectible. If you find it on eBay, it's probably going to go for a lot of money if it's in condition. It was no surprise then when our guest recently announced that he was working with Roger to re-release a long out-of-print title. There was a whole lot of enthusiasm. Uh, when Chris also mentioned that he'd be publishing a second volume of Roger's material that was never that never saw the light of day, the nerd squee reached heretofore unimaginable heights. Here to talk with us today about it all is Chris Torrance. Hello, Chris. How are you? Good. How are you guys doing? Doing good. Thanks. Good. Excellent. Excellent. Quinn, why don't you start us off with some questions? Well, the first one we always like to ask, of course, it's uh, it's easy and it's a softball, but don't worry, the uh, hard-hitting critical journalism is coming up momentarily. So, yeah, how did you get started with the Apple II? You know, back in back in those days, there was so many choices, uh, so much more than Mac or PC these days. So, uh, what uh, what was it about the Apple II that made you choose it over the others? Oh, well, that's a great question, Quinn. Why? Thank um, you. Sure. Well, it really started, uh, I guess that was back in seventh grade, and this would have been about 1981, and so therefore you can figure out how old I am. I was taking a computer class, and we were using old deck line terminals, printers, and I remember playing Oregon Trail on it and, and typing in bang as fast as I could to get across the, uh, the trail. Um, and that's kind of really where I just kind of fell in love with computers in general, and then I did some research and started saving up for one. But at the time, you know, the prices were kind of ridiculous. You know, the, you had the kind of the cheaper ones and the, the more expensive ones. And of course, unfortunately, the Apple was in the more expensive camp. And so I was originally shooting for like a TRS-80 and I had about $400 saved up, which I think would have been close. I don't, I forget what the exact prices of those were. And then a computer store actually was opening up near my house and they were having a grand opening contest where they were giving away a free computer. Um, so, of course, my family and I went to it, and for some reason they had this ballot box, and they had no rules or regulations about how many times you could submit your name. <laughs> and so, since there was four of us total in our family, we just kept stuffing the box, and, along with everyone else, I should add, so it wasn't just us. And then we were the, the lucky winners, and so we won an Apple II Plus family system, uh, which was the one that kind of came with, you know, not just the computer, but a whole bunch of software. And so then, once I had that, I was able to actually take the $400 and instead buy a monitor for it because it didn't come with a didn't come with a monitor. So I remember buying a nice neck color monitor, and that was kind of the beginning of my love for the Apple II. And then over the years, I kind of, you know, I used it all through high school, and you know, for lots of papers and projects and wrote a lot of programs on it. I remember doing some pro, uh, some program for one of my teachers so that they could do the grading, uh, for my class. And, and I, I, looking back on it, I probably should have programmed in like my name or something and gotten a, an A plus or something, but I, I didn't think of that at the time. And then, you know, once I graduated, I sort of fell away from it for a while because I, I didn't take it to college. And, you know, it was really only just a few years ago when I kind of got back into it you know, kind of realize that there's kind of this renaissance that's going on now in kind of retro computing. So what was it that brought you back in after all that time? <laughs> uh, it's funny you should ask. It's actually, uh, I got a, a Raspberry Pi for a Christmas present, and 
I wanted to play around with it and I started doing some research and then suddenly, you know, discovered pretty quickly that you can actually interface them with a, an Apple computer. And I was like, well, that's, that's really cool. And I have my, you know, I have my two plus in the basement. So I'm going to, I'm just going to try that. And so once I, once I dragged it back up and put it on my desk, well, then, you know, then I sort of just kind of started using it constantly and just kind of, you know, remembered why I had enjoyed using it so much and just been having fun playing with it ever since. That's great. So you have the original 2 Plus that you had back in the day. Yeah, I do. Yeah, it's it's funny. I listen to all the, you know, these interviews and people are always lamenting at that, ah, oh, they gave it away to garage sale and then they're, you know, but somehow miraculously my, you know, my mom hung on to it for about 20 years and then I brought it out here and it's still still fully functional. And it, I have to admit though, I, I also have a, a 2E just because, you know, the 2 Plus has its its limitations and the main one being the lack of lowercase. And so I have a, a 2E that I actually I probably use more than the uh, the 2 Plus nowadays. But I was just done through um, um, the Raspberry Pi interface. Is that through uh, Ivan Drucker's A2 Cloud and A2 Server? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, so I've got it all set up on that. Yeah, I, I, actually now I'm I'm really just kind of plugging it more straight into my Mac and just you know using ADT Pro to transfer files back and forth. Um, and so the Raspberry Pi, I kind of every now and then I'll log into it as a kind of a dumb terminal from the uh, from the Apple, which is. You know, that's kind of fun too, because then you can kind of do some, pretend you're using Linux on the Apple, which is, <laughs> which is pretty cool. So obviously right now, uh, the big thing that you're working on other than the Raspberry Pi stuff is getting Roger Wagner's assembly lines books, uh, what, recompiled and republished or what's, what's going on there? Yeah, that, that's a good way to put it. You know, I, I had read all of his articles back in the day because I got, you know, I had a subscription to Soft Talk. And I foolishly, that, that was the one thing I did not hang on to is actually I recycled almost all of my soft talks, you know, about 15 years, which was just looking back on it was stupid. And so I actually ended up having to rebuy them all on eBay. And I'm still missing, I think, the first three issues from 1980. So if anybody has any uh, leads on those, I'd be really appreciative. Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, I know. E Very eBay. eBay is your friend and your enemy in that case. But yeah, so I, I really had enjoyed the uh, Assembly Lines articles, and I had picked up a copy of Roger Wagner's book, the Volume 1, which was the first, I think, 16 articles. And then, you know, I quickly realized that there was supposed to have been a Volume 2, and it was never published. And it just happened that, you know, that was the exact time when Soft Talk was going out of business. And... There was even announcements in the, you know, the, the last few issues of Soft Talk about, oh, you know, Assembly Lines Volume 2 is coming real soon. And then it never came out. So then I just thought, well, that's, that's kind of a shame that, you know, there's all these people who, you know, they can get Volume 1 fairly easily, but they don't really have any good way of getting at the articles. Um, and at the time, there wasn't really a project to put the PDFs up online. And so, I thought, well, why not try and actually contact Roger Wagner and see if he'd be interested in, you know, having me help to publish these articles. And initially, he, he's pretty tough to get uh, in touch with. He's, you know, he's very busy. And uh, but once I got a hold of him, he was more than happy to, you know, have someone take an interest in it. And he's just kind of giving me free reign to do whatever I want with the project, which is great. So the, the the name assembly lines, you know, that that means something to to most Apple II users probably. But uh, can you just tell us a little bit uh, what 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 it was exactly? How did it sort of serve the community at the time? Yeah, sure. So it was originally a, a series of articles in Soft Talk magazine, and it was really kind of Roger Wagner's way of gently introducing people to assembly language programming on the sixty five hundred two. He just started out with a real 
brief introduction to the architecture of the Apple, and then kind of slowly built up in each article. He would add a few more instructions, starting with the easy ones. Um, you know, how do you load a number from memory? How do you put it back in memory? How do you interface with AppleSoft Basic? And then from there, he just kind of built, and each article just kind of got more and more complex, and he would do things like, well, how do you do high-resolution graphics from assembly language? Or how do you modify uh, DOS to do different things? And by the end of it, he was doing some fairly complicated programs, like, you know, actually like like a game or something. And it was just really a really cool way to kind of teach, you know, your average user who maybe was just kind of using the Apple for their day-to-day -day things, but teach them a little bit about assembly language programming. And if you were more serious, you could kind of take his articles and then just go from there and, you know, read more and, and do even more cool things. So, okay, yeah, so that's not to be confused with uh, Apple Assembly Line, uh, which was a newsletter by uh, Bob Sanders-Sierloff, uh, which was also sort of a recurring thing about uh, assembly language programming. So this was the series of article or series of columns that was in Softalk, Softalk Magazine. Yes, that's correct. And actually, um, speaking of that, Bob Sanders-Sierloff, uh, his website has actually been invaluable because, you know, you can still find all of his dumps of all of the ROM and the Apple with, with all of the, uh, you know, his annotations on it. And I've actually had to use that quite a bit when I've been editing the book just to check facts and things. Right. Yeah. It's actually, yeah, he's got uh, his own sort of family site where he's hosting that. And uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes because it is a great reference for anyone. He's got a lot of neat tricks in there for, for assembly programming. And uh, also Am uh, Asimov has a very large archive of everything sort of related to that. Uh, so we can link to that as well. But uh, yeah, the, uh, the online version is, is a nice quick reference. So uh, sort of jumping ahead to the present day then, so uh, tell us this, a bit about this so-called uh, Roger Wagner volunteer archivist role. Uh, what is that, <laughs> and how did you sort of fall into that? <laughs> well, that's I'm, I'm not exactly sure on the timeline for that. I don't remember if I contacted uh, Jim Salmons or if he contacted me, but so the, the Soft Talk Apple project is uh, it's basically a project to take all of the Soft Talk magazines and get them digitally uh, preserved, so PDFs, high-resolution high PDFs, and then uh, run them through OCR, but then kind of go to the next level and actually do a lot of, adding a lot of, like, metadata, meta-information about the articles in the magazine. So all the articles, all the advertisements, and everything is going to be cross-linked, and you'll be able to do, you know, some really cool kind of data mining. And so he found out that I was doing this project uh, with the assembly lines articles and then, you know, asked if I wanted to be, uh, this kind of volunteer archivist is the title that he came up with. Um, it's really cool because, you know, there's a website now and you can get to a lot of information about soft talk. And then also, you know, I'm, I'm kind of taking on that role of the Roger Wagner archivist, whatever that means. <laughs> and it's, it's just been a lot of fun. And, and, you know, so we, we exchange a lot of emails about what's going on and, um, you know, he's, he's getting a lot of support through the community, him and, um, you know, his wife, Timlin, and they're just, you know, they're just doing a great job with the with the project, and I think it's going to be really cool once they have the whole thing up and you know, assembled on the uh, on the website. So, in addition to the sort of the ones that everyone would have been able to read back then, there's also going to be this sort of volume two, and these are ones that were not released before. Or how does that relate? Yeah, so so volume one was published, and that one had all the articles from the first sixteen articles from Soft Talk. So my book is actually going to be all of the Assembly Lines articles, so all the ones that were in Volume 1, as well as all of the articles that appeared in Soft Talk but were never actually published in book form. So there's a total of 33 chapters, 
plus all the uh, appendices which were in the original assembly lines book, the volume one book. Uh, so it's things like all of the 6502 instructions. Uh, you know, there's an ASCII table, interesting locations in the ROM and things like that. And I'm trying to make it, it it's interesting because I have this challenge where I, it's kind of a, I'm publishing it as if it had been published back then, but at the same time, I'm kind of doing it with kind of more modern, you know, it has a more modern look and feel. And, you know, obviously I can mention things that, you know, we didn't necessarily know back then. Like, for example, in the, uh, the chapter about the 65CO2, it had just come out when Roger wrote that. And so he didn't really know how it was going to shake out in terms of, you know, which vendor was going to support which instructions. So I've been doing things like adding a lot of footnotes where, you know, I can say, okay, well, this actually, this instruction isn't actually available on the Apple. But at the same time, I don't really want to change his original content too much either. So it's kind of this fine balance. Okay, yeah, that kind of notation is going to be really valuable. Uh, that's something that I've been running into myself recently. I've been doing some programming and reading these old books. And yeah, at best, you know, some of these old books, they have like an appendix that's added for the 65CO2. And and uh, at worst, yeah, there's no mention of it. And like you say, yeah, it's not clear uh, which uh, of the extended instructions are are, uh, are supported. And it was actually a little bit tricky to sort of figure that out. I uh, had a couple of missteps where the assembler would happily assemble instructions that didn't exist. And then, uh, of course, the <laughs> Apple II wasn't too happy about that. <laughs> so, uh, so, okay, so in addition to the assembly lines books, then, so you're also archiving Roger Wagner's other work. Is that is that correct? Yeah, I haven't done that much with that because I've been really focused on the book. But the eventual goal is to, you know, find out like, well, okay, what was all the software that he published? Um, you know, his company was um, Southwestern Data Systems, and so they published a lot of different like communication software as well as obviously things like the the Merlin assembler. And then going through all of the soft talk issues and just finding references to him and his company, and just kind of collecting that all into one big database, if you will, um, where you can kind of just get a, a feel for like, you know, his impact on the Apple II community through the years. So that's, that's the idea, but I haven't, I haven't really gotten to that stage of it yet. I'm just trying to focus on the book. How far along are you in, in, in this process? When, when can we expect to be able to get our hands on the books? Well, that is a great question. So I just finished as of a couple days ago, I finished the last chapter. So it's all, you know, I'm, I'm using open office to author it. And so it's all in there. Um, all the code has been typed in. I had to, I couldn't, uh, use the OCR to, uh, from the PDF, uh, for the code because it just, it got all mangled. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. So I ended up just typing in all the code, which, which was a good learning experience anyway. And then of course <laughs> I could, I could test it to make sure it actually worked. So I have all the code typed in and it's pretty close to being done. Um, I think I need to obviously need to do the cover and I have it out. For uh, review right now, I've got some great uh, proofreaders. Antoine Vigneault is one of them. John Groover is another one. And then Sean Lewis. And so the three of them are just doing a great job at kind of, you know, the nitty gritty of going through and checking all my assembly instructions to make sure they're correct and everything. And so uh, cross your fingers, it'll hopefully be maybe a couple months. So in time for, uh, you know, the Christmas holidays. So if you're looking for that special gift for someone... Uh, who, who really wants to do 6502 assembly programming, you know, this, this could be a good choice for that. One thing I should add though is I'm, you know, there's no, there's no profit in any of this. So that was one of the things that Roger and I agreed with is, you know, we were just going to sell it at cost. What I'm planning on doing is actually hosting it through Lulu, which is a, a print on demand service. And then they also cross post it on Amazon. So it'll be on Amazon. You can buy it there. 
Um, and I'm just going to sell it for whatever the, the cost is. And, and I'm not out to make any money on this. Now you mentioned, mentioned Lulu as, as the print on demand, uh, portion of this. Is this also going to be available as an ebook or paper only? That's a good question. I don't know. Maybe you guys have an opinion on this. I originally was kind of resisting doing an ebook because I really like the, just kind of the, the idea of having like a solid print book that you, you know, like for example, Stephen Weirich's book, which is sitting actually right next to me, you know, th- those were all available on his web pages, so you can go and read it. But it's just having the physical book is just kind of so cool um, with all of this content and just being able to flip through it and find stuff. So I've kind of been resisting doing a, an electronic version, but, you know, I know a lot of people would really prefer that. So I don't know. Do you have any ideas on that? Yeah, I think you'll probably find sort of equal quantities of people that like both. Uh, so that's, yeah, it's probably a, a worthwhile thing. M- myself personally, uh, as much as I do like paper books, especially the old ones with that old Apple II book smell, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it is awfully nice to have all of my references right here on my iPad, you know, so I can just search for things and, and just sort of have all of my references everywhere I go and, so yeah, I guess I'm personally I'm partial to the PDFs, even though I do I do like books as well. Uh, so that would certainly be my vote. I, I tend to agree. I think that the the search function goes a long way for me because you said it's it's OCR and so it's going to be searchable. And if I need to to look something up, um, you know, I can't remember how to do a routine or I need to to figure out why this isn't this this uh, B and E is not working the way that I think it is. I can just search real quickly on my iPad instead of trying to flip through an index and then flip back through. Uh, but there's certainly uh, also an appeal of being able to hold the paper book in my hand as well. So if you just chose to go with the paper, I, I don't think anybody would complain that loudly. But having the ebook there is certainly a nice function. I know that some of the publishers, when you buy the paper copy, you automatically get access to the, the EPUB as well. Maybe right. that's something to think about. So. You know, I, I think in some sense it's going to end up as an ebook no matter what, because no matter what you do, you know, someone's going to scan it. And so, <laughs> so you might as well be the one to do it. And then you kind of have control over, you know, the quality of it and make sure it looks nice. And yeah, I mean, you touched on a key point there, I think, which is that uh, for me at least, uh, a bad PDF is worse than a paper book. But a good PDF is better than a paper book. So there's, you know, there's lots of scans and in, in ebooks out there that are terrible. Some some of them are, you know, 500 megabytes and they're so poorly rendered that the, you know, the iPad takes three seconds to switch pages and you know, and those are maddening to to try and read electronically. So for those, you know, I would have rather just had the paper book. Uh, but if it's done well, it's great. So you know, if it's OCR and searchable and it's lightweight and you know the tables are all aligned properly and so on, then it's it's good. But it's I'm guessing probably more work to do it well than to just scan it. Well, you know, and another thing too is I, I also want to definitely release the code that I've all typed in too. So I have that all saved as, uh, you know, disk images in both DOS and ProDOS. And, you know, I should just put those out there as well. And I guess those could just go along with the PDF. And if possible, it's nice to be able to see the code easily on a modern machine. Like I found this problem as well with these older books that, uh, you know, the disk images for the pack-in floppy is, are available. But to use that code, I have to open that disk image in an emulator and then load it in emulated software and try to copy it out of Virtual 2, you know, because I'm doing all my coding, you know, on the Mac, you know, in CC65. So if I want to copy and paste code out of one of these old floppy disk images, it's kind of like 18 steps, which is sort of funny. Uh, so if there's a way to sort of just copy and paste it out of a, a web page or a PDF that I can view, you know, on my Mac, that would be great, too. 
one thing that I've seen, and I, I don't know that this would have any applicability to to what you're doing uh, with with Roger, but so J.W. Rinsler has po- has published those fabulous hardcover, you know, making of Star Wars, making of Empire Strikes Back, and Jedi, and they're they're these tomes, they're big heavy tomes, and they have gorgeous pictures and stories that are that have been told that have never been heard before, and things like that. The ebook version, what they've done is they've also added in, you know short video clips and audio clips of, of interviews that happened with George Lucas, you know, back in 77 that you've never heard before. So there's, there's this value added thing that's going on there as well. So maybe I, you know, like I said, I don't know that you could sit Roger down and, and <laughs> interrogate him about stuff in, in that or, or if it, that would be interesting, but that's something that I've seen as well. Yeah. That, that's a fantastic idea. Um, I, I've kind of thought about flying out to, I think he's in Southern California, I want to say, um, you know, cause at, at one point he was saying, oh, you know, I think I have some lost chapters that never made it in and, you know, something about floating point arithmetic or something, but you know, they, they were like lost in a, a storage shed of his and he's like, well, you're welcome to come down and take a look in there, you know, cause he said he, he saved everything from his, uh, wow. Yeah. Which is very tempting. So maybe, maybe it's worth a trip down there. Well, now Mike's put this idea in my head, so I'm expecting a director's cut with some sort of interview of like maybe maybe Roger and Steve Wozniak reading the book together and you know commenting on the code, something like that. that I'll, I'll accept no less. Okay, I'll, I'll get right on that. If you don't, you'll, you'll you can expect a very harsh review on on Open Apple. <laughs> That's right. Well, I'm already expecting that you know there's going to be all these probably criticisms and things that I've gotten completely wrong, and even though the articles were written 30 years ago, and I'm, I'm sure there's boo boos in there somewhere, so I'll, I'll be prepared for it. Now, are you working? Uh, how closely are you working with Roger on this? You'd mentioned that he just kind of turned you loose. Is this sort of a thing where you submit a chapter to him and get his approval, or you just like off in your office and then it's done and you hand him the finished product? I think that's going to be pretty much it. Yeah, I, I you know, I sent him uh, when I first started. I sent him, I think, like the first eight chapters or so, and he said it looked great. You know, anything that I, you know, any support I needed from him. Um, and so I think at this point, you know, I pretty much need like a kind of a blurb from him about, you know, kind of what he's been up to. I'd like to, you know, kind of say, okay, what have you been doing the last 30 years? And then just maybe an up-to-date photo of him, you know, like an author's photo. Other than that, I think it's just, I'll just give him the finished product and, you know, maybe I can get an autographed copy from him or something for myself. And that's, that's going to be it. You just tell him, we don't need you, old man. I got your stuff. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> So, Chris, uh, uh, that's those efforts are great. And uh, you mentioned that you've still got your two plus and your two e that you're playing with. So, uh, how do you how do you use your Apple II today? What are you, what are you doing with it? Well, obviously, you know, as as you guys point out in every episode, uh, you know, I love to play games on it. I did that a lot as a kid. So every now and then, I'll just kind of pull out a uh, some old game and uh, fire it up, or you actually, you know, maybe an even newer game, right? Like some of the new ones that have come out. So a lot of that. And recently, of course, I've just been doing a lot of the programming of the assembly lines code. You know, it's kind of funny because I obviously do a lot of work on the uh, Virtual 2 emulator just because it's easier. But every now and then I'll, you know, if it's an especially long program, I'll just fire up the Apple and actually code it up in uh, Merlin on the the actual hardware just because it's so, you know, it's so much cooler to just do it on the actual computer. That's hardcore. It's old school. That's right. Ah, Yeah. Respect. It's so much fun. Yeah, and then, you know, then, of course, I have to transfer it back, you know, using ADT Pro back to my Mac so that I can then actually physically copy the code out from the, <laughs> yeah, because otherwise there's no way to paste it into the uh, the document. Right. right. So it's kind of, clearly it's, it's you know, way more steps than uh, are, you know, necessary, but it's still fun. You know, you can take a photo of the screen and then OCR it. <laughs> 
<laughs> I didn't think of that. That's a great idea. That's what I do. Works great. <laughs> well, it's kind of funny. I've actually roped my uh, my family into helping me at some point. So I think one of my daughters was reading assembly language code back to me so I could double check it, which <laughs> I, I'm sure to them it was just complete gibberish. But it was it was fun for me. So still gibberish to me most of the time too. But yeah, true, true. Fumble through anyway. So you mentioned gaming. What? Uh, so what is your favorite game? And the correct answers are Load Runner and Choplifter. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely Choplifter, uh, Karateka. I would oh, say. In of fact, course, I, yeah. I have, I have my little Karateka t-shirt on right now. So those two, Wizardry, I played a lot of Wizardry back in the day. I only got up to, I think, Wizardry 3, and then at that point I kind of moved away. So I never played the, the fourth one. Um, so I was thinking I should actually go back and try those again. They pretty much just got worse as they went on. <laughs> so after the first one, you might just want to switch to Ultima. <laughs> yeah, I played I played a little Ultima, but for some reason I always liked I don't know, I liked Wizardry more. You're and, off the show. Oh no. <laughs> this is an Ultima show. <laughs> uh Olympic Decathlon. That was another one of my favorites oh, too. Yeah. yeah, I love that one. It's yeah, people people rag on it a little bit because the graphics are primitive because it was such an early one, but uh my sister and I played the crap out of that game. Yeah. Just yeah. hours and hours. The keyboard killer. Yes, yeah, I was just totally. Say, just being able to to mash the arrow keys left and right, and uh, to, yeah, to this day, fantastic. I think that the arrow is in the one and two key on my uh, two plus are completely <laughs> worn out. My dad wouldn't let me play that game because he was afraid I'd, I'd break the keys. Well, he, well, he was not wrong. <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah. Speaking of uh, your dad, the um, well, not your dad, but my dad. And, uh, <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> how do you know Mike's dad? Yeah. <laughs> it was always funny though because. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned how we won the computer, and it was actually my dad's name that they pulled out of the bucket or whatever. And so anytime he wanted to play a game, and his favorite game was Castle Wolfenstein for some reason, he would just kind of throw that out there. He's like, well, you know, I was the one who won the computer. And so, of course, then he would <laughs> boot us off and then go off and happily play Castle Wolfenstein. Ah, it's a good good trump card. Yeah, yeah, it was a good one. My sister's trump card was that she's a foot taller than me, so she'd just punch me in the arm and kick me off the stool. <laughs> it was also effective. All right, well, I guess that brings us to the news, and we got lots of it this month. Get what's new and exciting in retro computing with two news. It's been a busy few months for, for the Apple II community. Why don't we uh, Why don't we dive right in? I just can't uh, can't resist talking about Dagan Brock's videos once again. So for those who uh, have been living in a cave and or don't listen to Open Apple, in which case you're probably not hearing this anyway, Dagan Brock has started a video series on uh, programming for the Apple II GS. Uh, he's been busy, so we talked about episode zero last time, and since then he's done an episode zero follow up where he kind of answers questions people had and uh, and that sort of thing, which is great because it kind of makes the process a little interactive, uh, which is uh, kind of a, a fun way to uh, to deal with the community, almost like a podcasting model where you sort of take emails and, and respond to them on the next show. And uh, he's also done an episode one since then. So it sounds like he might be uh, taking a little bit of break before episode two. He's busy with uh, stuff. Uh, yeah, they, they continue to be great. So he's uh, he's got all the still doing the animations and the titles, and they're lots of fun to watch. Uh, so have you seen these things, Chris? I have. Actually, I watched the first one, and uh, 
know, it's kind of funny because I never really uh, played around with the 2GS. It just kind of came after I, you know, had stopped for a while and, you know, I'm kind of frozen in time back at the 2 Plus and 2E. And so it's just very cool to see the type of things you can do with a 2GS, even even just entering a few instructions. So, yeah, he's he's doing an awesome job. And, and I love his uh, his beard, too. Yes. Very cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the, the 2GS is interesting because it's, uh, it's very much an Apple II, but it's also very much a, a modern computer in many senses of the, of the word. You know, the CPU is is structured such that it's got real memory management and it can run a sort of a modern style operating systems and easily run relocatable code and all these sorts of things that you need for modern computing. And uh, so it's sort of just on the other side of that line uh, into the realm of modern computing from the Apple II, but it's still very much an Apple II. So uh, yeah, it's fun. Dagan's videos are great. I never had a 2GS spring up like uh, like you, Chris. Um, I'm sort of stuck in the 8-bit Apple II Era, but I found that, and I talked about this last time, I sat in on Dagenbrock's Kansas Fest presentation of the 2GS assembly language, uh, and I found them, um, even though I don't know much about the machine, uh, I found them very easy to follow along with, and, and what he was saying made a lot of sense, and it made me feel like it wouldn't be that hard for me to at least kind of learn some basic stuff about programming the 2GS. And as I watch the YouTube videos, I'm seeing the same thing in that presentation as well. He's got a, a very kind of, I guess, approachable teaching style that, uh, so even if you're, you know, you've never done assembly language at all, you may not understand the specific instructions, but the concepts come through and they, at least for me, they, they stick. This one's been sitting in the um, pile of things that I meant to talk about going back to early August. And for whatever reason, I think we just ran out of time last time. But the unofficial Apple weblog, T-U-A-W, had for a long time a series of podcasts. And they wrapped those up and they've replaced them with this new documentary series called Slices of Apple. Uh, they say that uh, if you ever wonder what makes Apple tick, uh, the company is notoriously secretive about its products, but perhaps has been even more secretive about how it operates on the inside. They're doing a series of short little videos uh, talking about different portions, I guess, of, of Apple history and, and events and people. And it's a, a neat series. I think they're up to episode eight now and definitely worth checking out if you're if you're into um, the history of the company. So are these videos then, Mike, or...? Yes. Okay, cool. I haven't actually watched these. I, uh, I'm going to check that out. The most recent one, for example, is uh, part two of Real Artists Ship, <laughs> um, on, which was sort of Steve's mantra yeah. when he was trying to get motivate people to do the extra work and stay, stay late and, and uh, produce for him. So next, uh, we unfortunately have a little bit of sad news, uh, as uh, many of you, I'm sure, know, since uh, RCR scooped us once again. Shake my fist at you. But unfortunately, uh, Douglas E. Smith, the author of Load Runner, has recently passed away. I think there are probably few Apple II users whose lives were certainly uh, uh, not impacted by that particular game. So uh, I myself was, uh, it was pretty much all I played for big chunk of my childhood. It was <laughs> such an amazing game. I mean, just the gameplay was so well-tuned, and there was so many levels and so many challenges, and, you know, the editor was this whole new dimension. I remember I had this distinct memory of, you know, I'd been playing Load Runner for probably a good year or two, and uh, I had no idea the editor was in there. And uh, somewhere, I'm, I think it's on the school bus or something, this would have been, you know, elementary school... I overheard someone saying that there was this editor in it and you just had to push this certain key combination and it appeared. And so I was so excited, ran home from school that day and did it. And it just, my little brain melted. It was so exciting. And uh, so that, yeah, played with that for years afterwards. So 
just, yeah, really, really incredible game. Seminal work. And uh, we will miss you, Douglas E. Smith. You guys want to share some Load Runner memories? Yeah, I, I would say exactly what you said, Quinn. I mean, it, that game, you could just spend so much time just running up and down the ladders and just kind of, you get to these places where you would just think you'd have it and then you would just make a wrong move and then you'd be trapped. And it was so frustrating. But uh, that and, and Championship Load Runner 2, which was kind oh. of the same thing, but kind of amped up, you know, and that, that one was even harder. And I, Now, did he actually, did he design the levels for the championship load runner as well, or was that someone else? I actually don't know. Uh, I didn't play a lot of that one because, yeah, it was just so much tougher uh, that uh, I never quite could get a handle on it. So I'm not sure if, if he built those levels or not. The game was so, the gameplay was so well-tuned, you know, which wasn't that common in, you know, in those days, but just the, every little aspect of it, you know, the timing of when you started digging a hole, there was that sort of minimum amount of time required for the digging to start. And so it sort of set this boundary where you had to be at least this far away before you could dig a hole. And there was just every aspect of the game was filled with little details like that that really added this depth and strategy to it. It's such a quintessentially Apple II game, you know, it just, there was never a decent version of it on any other platform. And the it had the Apple II look with the blue and the white and the orange, you know, it was one of the best, one of the early games to do really make it actually good use of the colors in a way that didn't have lots of fringing and other other artifacting. They sort of worked with what the hardware could do, and so they were very clever in how the sprites were, you know, built sort of with the little orange caps on their heads and and uh, the, the stripes, the way the stripes in the chests were sort of laid out so that it didn't fringe. And uh, so everything, just every aspect of it was just so well polished. Uh, really was amazing. Mike, how about you? You must have played some Lord Runner. When you start a game on, on a modern platform, PC or, or Xbox or something today, if your game gives you 20 hours of play, that's a long game mm-hmm. these days, you know. I just think back to, and not just Load Runner, but you know, Ultima and, and Wizardry and, and some of these action games that were, you know, they, the action was repetitive, but it was repetitive in a good way. It was addictive and you kept coming back to it. You could play these for hundreds and hundreds of hours. You know, there were, what, 255 levels for, for the original Load Runner. And I, I, that was one of the few games I actually finished. I, I sat down one day and, and said, I'm going to play this entire game. And I forget how many hours it took me, but I got through all 255 levels. And then I said, well, let's take on Championship Load Runner. And I got my butt kicked because <laughs> I think I remember reading this in a uh, magazine at the time that Championship Load Runner was the, uh, 50 of the – they compiled 50 of the hardest levels that other people had created. I don't know if, if how accurate that is. could probably spend some time on Google if I wasn't completely lazy about it. But uh, I remember that with Championship Load Runner, if you finished all 50 levels, you could you would get this code on the screen and you could send it into Broderbund and they would send you back a certificate. And I think there was a T-shirt. And, and um, I don't know that I ever saw one of those or heard of anybody that beat it. I'm sure the, the number was very low, but this was certainly a game that – on which I spent many, many hours as a youth when I should have been doing homework or outside talking to girls or something. <laughs> Quinn, you'd mentioned the, the graphics, you know, and the kind of the iconic orange bricks and the white ladders and the sound always sticks with me, you know, when, when I hear that kind of two tone, the digging sound. Yes. Oh, yes. Um, you know, or, or when the, when you've fallen into your own trap and, and you're waiting for it to close on you. Yes. And the, that sort of zipping up sound. And yeah. that's, you know, very kind of triggers some really great memories for me. So I, I love this game and, I know it's been a long time since since Douglas has been active in the Apple II community in any way. 
you know, but I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of fans out there, obviously, that are going to miss him. And I think maybe in 2012, we were actually trying to track him down to have him come on on this very show and talk to us. And we were not able to, to find a contact for him. So it's kind of sad to learn that uh, now we will not have that chance. You know, there was actually um, over on the Compasses Apple II, there was uh, a guy that had posted uh, after that news broke and he actually uh, had worked at the same company just a few years ago and he actually uh, posted kind of this interview that he kind of a semi-informal interview he had actually done uh, with Douglas Smith like just late one night he just sat him down and they just had this text chat back and forth and so he posted the entire uh, transcript of this over there and it's definitely worth reading it's it's pretty cool so at least, you know, at least there's something that, that he wrote about that. And so, you know, maybe you can put that in the show notes. For sure. Yeah, that's excellent. We'll definitely put that in the notes. Okay. Next up we have, this is sort of an odd one, and I, I forget how I stumbled upon this. Oh, I know. I have a, a Google alert for Apple II News. There's a, a Southern rocker named Joe Eli, I think I pronounced that correctly, who recorded an album 30 years ago uh, using his Apple II and an Alpha Centauri. Uh, and he called it B484, so B484, and uh, used a Roland 808 drum machine, which I guess back then was kind of a big deal because they didn't really have a lot of these fancy electronic uh, drum machines, so that was also innovative. And, and when he turned it into the record company, the executives said, we love this, we cannot sell this, please go record this using more traditional uh, studio methods. And he and his band went back and re-recorded it, didn't sell very well. Well, now he has dug up the original tracks, the Apple II Alpha Centauri tracks, and, and released that album on his own. And here's a little sample of that. So I thought that was sort of an interesting thing. Uh, he there, he did an interview with uh, the San Antonio Current, which is kind of an alternative news thingy down there, down down in San Antonio. And uh, he talks about how he ran his own BBS uh, on his Apple II back back then, and somehow ended up talking to Waz uh, late at night. He would have these conversations with Waz, and Waz ended up writing the liner notes for this, which are now included with B four eighty four. So. I don't know that this is everyone's taste, but if you're interested, you can check it out on iTunes. You don't have to buy the whole album. You can just buy one of the 99-cent songs. That's fantastic. What a great example of how the Apple II touched so many people in all walks of life. It's easy to easy to talk about it as sort of computer nerds that, that, that we are, but lots and lots of people were sort of deeply moved by that uh, that computer. I, speaking of stumbling upon things, found this link. Uh, it's called uh, cbm8bit.com. It's the... Uh, retro computer scene uh, search engine, and so it's search engine that that searches the the archives of different platforms of computers. So when you go to the main page, and we'll have a, uh, a link in the show notes, you can choose whether you want to search uh, Atari archives or Apple II. They've got Commodore eight bit, uh, the Microbean, the Tandy machines, the BBC Micro, the Oric, Amiga, and they have uh, a bit savers search function now. Currently, they only have two sites, two servers indexed uh, for the Apple II, and those are uh, Asimov and GNO. But it looks like that uh, is a total of 21,876 files, totaling 230 gigabytes. So sometimes 
things like uh, Asimov can be mm, a little challenging to search and wondering what you're actually getting because the things are not always named in the most obvious manner. But I, I don't know. I, I find this I find this thing kind of fascinating that, that you can just have an all-in-one search engine like this specifically for your uh, retro computer files. That is kind of neat. I don't know why anyone would ever want to search for Commodore or Atari stuff, but I suppose. Well, of course not. It's ridiculous. I suppose someone might. I don't know. <laughs> oh, and it looks like they've added a, a SID music search engine. So if you're into that, I don't, I, I haven't really looked at that too much, but uh, you might want to check that out. Yeah, SID is just showing off, really. I think it's compensating for something. <laughs> That's the uh, def- right. defensive Apple user posture on sound. Gotcha. We're just jealous. <laughs> <laughs> What about you, Chris? You ever use anything uh, retro besides Apple computers? Nope. It's pretty much just the Apple. Never, never really got into any of the uh, other gaming systems or anything. I never had an Atari or anything like that. So just yep, stuck with the Apple. Just the one that mattered then, right? Exactly. That's right. Correct answer. Okay, moving on. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so last month we uh, we talked a little bit about the uh, ImageWriter two that made a cameo in in Halt and Catch Fire, and I was I don't know. I, thought it was really charming to see that. that uh, Chris, I don't know if you're watching Halt and Catch Fire. I have not actually managed to catch an episode of that yet. I need to... Uh, you guys keep talking about it. So, uh. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty entertaining. So, uh, uh, yes, uh, second last or last episode of season one had a brief cameo by an image writer too, uh, sort of thinly disguised as something else. And uh, that got me thinking about printers. And sort of coincidentally, on uh, you know the Apple II enthusiasts Facebook group, there was a bunch of threads about printers recently. Everybody was talking about uh, ImageWriter twos, and yeah, I just feel like it's something that doesn't. Uh, they don't printers in general don't get a lot of love in the, you know in the retro computing sort of hobby these days. It's one of those areas. It's a bit like I think BBS is in this way where they're sort of not getting brought along with the rest of the retro computing hobby just because there's this sort of infrastructure required that is going away. You know, you can't get the paper anymore and or there's just sort of no need for them. Plus, I think at the time they were sort of obnoxious in a lot of ways. It was something that you you owned because there was no better way to do what they did, but nobody really liked dot matrix printers, I don't think. They were <laughs> loud and slow and, and annoying. Uh, yeah, Apple made some really great ones, so I think it's worth sort of giving them a little love here. You know, I wanted an image writer too for a really long time. I remember when I first got one, it had the four color ribbon, which I thought was just amazing. Uh, one of my uh, friends at school had the uh, the scribe printer. He got it with his two C, mm-hmm. and uh, I thought that thing was awesome. I mean, I didn't understand at the time how poor the quality was because it was just the fact that anything was printing that came off your computer at the time was sort of amazing. So. The fact that it was poor quality was sort of lost on me, but uh, I just loved how quiet it was. That was sort of magical because I had an Epson, I don't know, FGX something dash eight four whatever something something, and uh, sorry Earl, um, <laughs> but uh, and you know it was good good printer, but you know it, it sounded like someone was shooting a machine gun at a wall of tin cans, and you know it took forever to do anything. Uh, yeah, so uh, I guess I don't exactly want to hook up a printer anymore, but uh, it's sort of, uh, uh, I don't know, I have some fond memories of them. What about you guys? Do you remember your dot matrix printers? <laughs> oh, yeah. I had a Oki Data, Oki Data, oh, how you pronounce that? Yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, it was great at the time, right? Because, you know, that was the one you could actually um, 
you know, if you, I forget how to do it, but if you switched some certain mode, then you could actually print out graphics on it. And, uh, you know, it's pretty complicated to switch between graphics and text. Yeah. I mean, I printed, geez, probably every term paper from, you know, eighth grade all the way through, you know, the end of high school on that thing. And, uh, I mean, that's the good thing about those printers is, you know, I just dug it out of my basement a few years ago and the thing, I mean, it just looked like it, it did, you know, 30 years ago. I'm sure it would have worked if I would have <laughs> taken the time to actually plug it in. You know, that's, I think you're right. I think the problem is you just, that's one thing where you don't really, the, the nostalgia factor is not worth the, trying to get the paper and get the ribbon and, yeah. and remember how to use it. And, you know, you can just use an emulator and print from those now, unfortunately. So. <laughs> yeah. I remember the, uh, the ads for the Yoki Data printers, they were sort of, uh, they seemed like magic because they were sort of the, I don't know, I guess one of the earlier only sort of big color printers. And uh, so they always had these beautiful color images in the ads that had allegedly been printed on this thing. And uh, I just thought that, yeah, that was amazing to me. I don't know if they were nearly as good as the ads made them out to be. But, <laughs> no, uh, I... but yeah, when I finally got the ability to print in color with the Image Writer 2, I got one used with my uh, with my GS. Uh, yeah, that was amazing. I mean, I, I, I used to love printing stuff in color. You know, I think it, it cost something like $12 a page or something by the time you added up the, all the ink and stuff because, of course, it scrolled all four colors on the ribbon regardless of what color was being used. So if you printed a, you know, solid red document, you lost that amount of all of the other colors. So uh, hardly efficient, but uh, it was it was pretty pretty cool that it did it. How about you, Mike? The first Apple printer that I encountered was the, my dad called it the not-so-silent type. <laughs> I've told the story before about how he used to bring home the Apple III from NCR every weekend at his job and work on it. And it came with, uh, the Apple III had built-in functionality for the silent type and I think maybe the DMP or the DWP. And man, this thing was loud. I, although I, I guess maybe in comparison to, you know, the, one of those, High-speed dot matrix printers hammering away at three in the morning. This was probably a little quieter than that. Um, we actually, my dad kind of had to set a rule where I was not allowed to print things after he went to bed because <laughs> it, it would wake them up. And then with our two plus, he bought a was it Epson FX or RX 80. I forget which one, which, whichever one wasn't the good one. That's what he bought. <laughs> and I remember that Computist Magazine had this program you could type in where you, it would you would put your Ultima disk in and it would build a map of, of Britannia based on, on the code on the disk and it would print this thing out and, and you, it was like 24 sheets of paper or something like that. And you, you would tape it together. Um, and I, I remember him getting up at three in the morning and yelling at me for trying to print this thing out while he was sleeping. And I, I don't miss the old days of the clattering and the, and the banging around. But the thing is, I, uh, I recently scanned this, um, the Apple service level one technical procedures and it had take apart instructions, um, and basic PM stuff for a couple of Apple's printers. And I was looking at this thing and there must be some sort of voodoo or magic or something. And they're keeping these things running all, all these years later because there are just so many moving parts and they're all delicate and they all require so much care. And yet they seem to come together and work pretty well. So there's, for me, there is sort of an interest in, you know, digging around in the internals because it's not something that I've always hated produce, you know, I've never like, ugh, if somebody wanted me to, I could fix your computer, but I would not touch your printer if you had a problem, just, you know, call HP, I don't care. So kind of rediscovering that recently and, and seeing maybe an elegance in the design of these things has been, been very interesting. 
Yeah, that's a really good angle, actually, to think about these things. They really were sort of electromechanical wonders of the time. I mean, you know, these tiny little, you know, moving parts in them. And frankly, they are probably, you know, wearing out. There was a thread recently on on the Facebook group about uh, someone had bought an ImageWriter 2 and the, some of the pins in the head were seized or something, and they were trying to figure out how to take it apart to, to you know, to lubricate things and get it working again. And, you know, it's a lot like like an old car or an old clock, you know, delicate moving parts. They, they, they get stuck and they seize and and they have to be sort of uh, coaxed back to life. So it's, uh, I'm sure some people out there would be very interested in that scan. The the sections in binder that I that I scanned that were the printer sections were far thicker than than the computer sections for as far as you know the maintenance and take apart and so because just there are all these little sub assemblies with tiny delicate parts and it's you know warnings all over it that you could damage this and the printer would stop working if you didn't do that so yeah it's it's kind of I've been kind of digging around in in that and that's I found it very interesting cool I don't know why but. <laughs> well we'll uh, we'll link to that scan in the show notes oh and we should give a shout out to the uh, emulation ImageWriter two emulation in Virtual two any of our users that are not using Virtual 2 yet, well, A, what's wrong with you? And uh, <laughs> no kidding. B, B, it has a lot of sort of really cool hidden features that people might not know about. And one of those is the ImageTrader 2 emulation. So you can actually fire up Print Shop and make greeting cards or fire up Toy Shop and make the little steam engine, which I never got to work. We'll print them out as a PDF, which, you know, then you can dump out on your laser printer or take it to Staples or, or whatever. But uh, it's, uh, it's really well done. Like it has the sort of it has that dot matrix pixeliness to it and the sort of slightly fadedness of the ink. It's just, there's a t- attention to detail in it, just like the rest of, the, of that uh, program. It's, it's awesome. Yeah, Virtual 2 is, uh, you can, there's a, a freeware or shareware, I guess, version of it that I think it's limited or it only lasts for 30 days or something like that. But, and it's got kind of a, it, the first, the price tag seems kind of high. I think it's $59, $49, um, which, for emulation, when I first saw that, I was like, wow, that's kind of high. But when I bought this thing, I mean, it's been worth every penny, just the amount of effort that Gerard puts into this thing and, and the fact that it's continuing to be updated. You know, if, you, if you're if you emulating the, the, the 2GS, you want Sheppy's Sweet 16. And if you're emulating Apple II 8-bit, you want Virtual 2. For sure, especially if you're developing. Uh, Virtual 2 has actually got some really powerful debug stuff in it that I've been using. You know, you can actually pause the machine, and it's got this whole other window where you can uh, examine memory and, and step code and do all kinds of sort of uh, sort of meta-level stuff that you would have killed to have been able to do back in the day with the real machine. Like, what is this interrupt doing? Why is it corrupting this memory or whatever? So you can kind of just watch it, watch it happen. Uh, so that's, yeah, really, really powerful stuff. Yeah, there's a couple of different price points on it. I think there's a there's like a, an entry-level price and uh, a higher-level price that has some of the fancier stuff like the Apple scripting, which is also great for programming. Uh, you can write unit tests and so on in Apple script for your programs. For me personally, the higher tier uh, is worth every penny for sure. I keep finding new stuff that it does that is so useful and I, I have yet to want to do anything that it doesn't do so it's great uh, we have a bunch of game stuff to get to it's, there's a couple more news items that uh, I guess we can wrap up with OregonLive.com has a one of those click-through photo galleries of supposedly the world's largest collection of Apple prototypes I assume that means outside of Apple computer uh, most of it is more recent things toaster Max and, and Newtons and things like that but they also have uh, as part of this collection is uh, Jeff Raskin's Apple II, his original one that he modified to use his Swift card. Uh, and it's kind of interesting to see, like, uh, the space bar uh, all chopped up and, and the modifications that he made to that Apple II. Yeah, there's some great photos in there. We'll definitely link to that in the show notes. 
Lotus 1-2-3 has come to an end. I know that doesn't seem like maybe it's all that related to Apple II, but we like to kind of close our the, the regular news section out with something that isn't really related to Apple II, it seems. I think we did that last month, too. I think so, too, um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, this is uh, might be of interest simply because Lotus 1-2-3 was the company that ended up killing uh, Visicorp and Visicalc, um, that and along with all the legal problems they had. Uh, ZDNet.com has a, a farewell and a brief history of the program. Uh, I remember that it was introduced at Comdex um, in Vegas, I think, in maybe 82, 81 or 82, and then actually went on sale uh, the following January. And basically from the day that it came out, it it outsold every version of VisiCalc combined and never never looked back. VisiCalc went from 700,000 monthly sales or something to like less than 2,000 in a year because of Lotus. So farewell and rest in peace, Lotus 1, 2, 3. Mm-hmm. Well, and we, should, uh, we should mention that the dates have been announced for Oz K-Best and they've made a call for sessions as well. So we'll, uh, we'll link to that in the show notes. Uh, I've never been to an Oz K-Best, but I imagine it's awesome. I imagine it being like regular Kansas Fest, but upside down and everybody's talking about what's really a knife. Uh, send your hate mail too. That's <laughs> <laughs> But the hate mail will be in a funny accent. Yeah, I, w- I would like to point out here that uh, Andrew Rowan uh, actually had emailed me about this almost a month ago. It arrived in my inbox literally like 24 hours after we had recorded the previous show. And I took so long editing uh, September show that uh, this is actually kind of feels a little bit late because, well, it is. It's been uh, announced everywhere else. But if you're... In that area of the globe, probably um, probably worth checking out and hanging out with some cool guys and, and doing some cool stuff with Australian Apple Twos. Yeah. I wonder if the Apple Twos like talking in that accent. Yeah, or maybe they're just upside down on the desks. I don't know. Or or when in the winter they're actually warm, and in the summer they're actually cold. <laughs> they, they, right. I don't know. There's some, some. What about you, Chris? Have you ever been to a K-Fest in any continent? No, I have not. And uh, I, I really wanted to go this past summer, but uh, just my travel plans didn't quite work out right. And so I'm really hoping to get there next year. Yeah, hopefully uh, next summer I'll be able to go to the K-Fest. Well, and you no longer have an excuse not to go now that I know that you live like 10 miles away from me. <laughs> so I, I'm just going to come gather you up in my car. And I think, I'm, I, think I have two other people already that are going to join us maybe. And then you're just going gonna to come and have a good time. And that's All it. right. That sounds awesome. We do have some some game news before we get to the actual game section, I guess. First is that uh, apparently Oregon Trail LARPing is now a thing. This blows my mind. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. The AV Club has has an article uh, about this, and, and well, here's, here's what they say. Here's how it works. The teams of two to four people, many in pioneer garb, build a wagon out of paper and dowel rods before tackling <laughs> ten challenges inspired by the computer game. Things like floating the wagon across a kiddie pool, shooting it, Shooting a game with Nerf guns, competing in a three-legged dysentery race <laughs> to an outhouse. Oh, my God. Wow. This just keeps getting better. <laughs> Instead of finding shelter, we, we build a tarp tent while volunteers spray us with water. Uh, we survive being pummeled uh, with pool noodles by roller derby girls uh, at the Platte River Station. What on earth is going on? <laughs> can we uh, can we do this at uh, KFAS next, next year? I think we have to. Yep, we I think may have we do. to. Um, this is called the, the Oregon Trail Live. Uh, it's run by the Willamette Heritage Center in Salem, Oregon. Um, but as they point out, you could easily adapt this general structure to be played at home, which is why it must be played at Kansas Fest now. 
So, yeah, very – this fascinates me what people do with their imagination and too much time on their hands. Well, what I want to know is since everyone knows the best strategy in Oregon Trail was to go through the entire game naked and use all of your money on bullets, <laughs> I'm wondering, <laughs> has anyone done that in the LARP yet? If so, uh, video or it didn't happen. So uh, some of you may remember a while back there was a Kickstarter for uh, the from the original creators of Wasteland, and uh, they were going to set out to make a uh, a sequel, Wasteland Two, and it's uh, finally available. So that's uh, super exciting. I know for myself, and I'm sure a lot of Apple II users, Wasteland was easily top five best games on the platform. And I think uh, for me personally, it has the Distinction of being the first RPG I ever actually finished. I, uh, <laughs> I played a great many of the Ultimas. I played all the Ultimas, but uh, fin- only finished a couple of them. So uh, Wasteland was the first one that I actually played all the way through. How about you guys? Did you play Wasteland? <laughs> this is when you're going to throw me off the show when I say, nope, I never played it. Wow. But I know, I know, but I'm, I've been waiting to play this one, but I cannot download it because I know if I do, I will get sucked into it, and then you will never see the Assembly Lines book, so... I'm I'm waiting till it's done, and then I'm going to buy it. Well, if 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 you've not played the first one, then I don't think you're allowed to play this one. I think <laughs> if you try to install it, there's actually a screen that says "just go buy a Commodore," and then it kicks you off. <laughs> okay, I'll play the first one first. Then uh, there were a number of, I guess, spiritual successors, if you wanted to call them that, in the Fallout series. I played, let's say, I played one, two, and the Brotherhood of Steel, which is just an awful game, but. Uh, and I bought Fallout 3, but there were so many bugs, but it's Bethesda, what are you going to do? <laughs> I couldn't get anywhere in that game. But this is the this is being described as the actual, the first direct sequel to 1988's Wasteland. There are two versions available. You can get it on GOG, uh, Good Old Games, or Steam. There's the digital classic edition, which includes the manual, three wallpapers, uh, the reference card, and some other free goodies. Uh, the download is 9.6 gigabytes, so cool. fairly large. And we will definitely link to that in the show notes. Yeah, so I'm having trouble finding the link to the to the other version of it. Sorry, folks, I'm lazy and, and not interested in Googling that much. Uh, it costs, I think, $10 more and has a bunch of other extras. And, and so if you are at all interested in the game, if you were a fan of the original, uh, I think probably worth $39.99 at least. Yeah, this is one of those things where the Kickstarter actually uh, materialized into an actual product, which doesn't happen as often as we would like. And when you mentioned uh, Fallout being the spiritual successor, I, I think it was actually even a little more than that because, uh, as I recall, the, some of the original team from Wasteland actually were trying to make Wasteland 2 and the project kept getting canceled or something or they weren't getting the resources and so they actually went off and, and, and made Fallout uh, since they couldn't get permission to use the name Wasteland or something like that. So they would, it's actually, I think, sort of a fairly direct uh, sequel to, to the original. I think you're right, and, and I, I don't... I don't know if that was the time. That was around the time, maybe when Interplay started having all its problems and eventually closed its doors. But you can get those games as well on GOG and I, maybe on Steam. But like the original Fallout and Fallout Two, those games are only like five bucks. So if you want to check those out, definitely do it. There's no reason not to. I'm looking at Gamespot right now. They reviewed it and they gave it they gave it an eight out of ten, which I think is a pretty high rating for them. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking through some of the the other re- Google results I have here and and. People seem to really like this, which sometimes spiritual successors and, and sequels that are 30 years later and, and things like that, you know, turn out to be big pieces of garbage. And it looks like this is not one of those. I do like this headline here that says, uh, Wasteland 2 is an RPG that lets you kill absolutely everybody. So check it out. For sure. Yeah. And actually, uh, I'd like to 
give a quick shout out to Fallout Tactics as well, which is sort of a lesser known member of the series. Uh, that was sort of, it's, it's sort of tongue in cheekly called the, uh, the good part of Fallout. It's, uh, <laughs> it's just the, just the combat portion of it, basically. It's a whole sort of spin-off game that's just a whole series of, of combats using their, you know, really detailed turn-based combat game. And it's, if you like turn-based strategy games, it's really, really well done. So, uh, that's also worth playing, which I'm sure is also on, uh, on GOG as well. Uh, yeah, I, actually, I played Fallout 3 on uh, on the 360, and I really liked it. Like you said, it was definitely buggy, but it was it was definitely a Bethesda game. It didn't feel like uh, like Fallout or Wasteland. Uh, in other gaming news, Prince of Persia turns 25. My goodness, I'm old. Doesn't look a day over 20. Of course, Jordan Mechner recently got together with uh, Jason Scott and Tony Diaz, uh, and there was a big article in Wired magazine about uh, rescuing, you know, finding the source code. His father, I guess, found the shoebox in the closet that had his original discs and the source code. And uh, they went out and kind of helped him get the code off those discs and make it available. I think you can you can download it now. He's released the source code to, to anybody who's interested. It's neat to see that it seems that that experience seems to have gotten Jordan back into gaming a little bit, at least kind of the, the retro gaming stuff. You know, he, he remade. Karateka, which I guess didn't do very well, but digitalspy.com has a little uh, retrospective on the game and what it meant to people, so worth a read. Yeah, the source code is actually a really good read. It's really nice code, and uh, I definitely learned a lot of tricks for programming the 8-bit uh, apples on it. What about you, Chris? Have you looked at uh, the source code at all? I did, and uh, I'm really tempted to actually try and compile it. I don't know. Do you know if anybody's actually gotten it to successfully compile and, and run or anything? I know people have tried, but... Yeah, I know people have tried. I don't know if anyone has succeeded yet, actually. I think that would be very cool to, to be able to do that. But Yeah, I think the assets are not available, as I recall. I seem to remember he couldn't get the rights to those or something, so it's just the code and not the artwork or something. Okay. So you wouldn't be able to actually build it into something that you can run. Uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's really nice code. I think somebody in maybe Comstas Apple II started a thread about how they went through and had to, I want to say he had to go and extract those assets from the original disk and mm -hmm. stuff like that, but he was able to create his own disk image from the source code. So it took a lot of work, but it's not something you can just sit down and do in a night. But. Yeah, well, and it had a really exotic copy protection on it too, so it might be difficult to even just create a disk image using regular tools. I mean, maybe they had to compile the code and then also crack it <laughs> in order to, because uh, I know one of the things I liked reading about in the source code was sort of all of the hoops that it jumps through to, to load the data off of this sort of wacky disk format. They had it was like 18 tracks or something that they did to sort of make it not copyable. I remember that when I finally got a cracked version of that, it was one of the coolest cracks ever. It required two floppy disks, two floppy drives, and you put one disk in each drive and it would jump back and forth and it would boot one track off each drive alternately. It was awesome. I'm sure there's there's since then there's been simpler cracks, but that was I think one of the early attempts to do it. I know that I wonder how that'll affect the uh, the archiving folks. Uh, uh, I know that uh, Paul Hagstrom and some others are uh, putting out a big effort to archive a lot of these games with the copy protection intact, because uh, that's you know the only reason we have any of these games, of course, is that they were all cracked. You know, it's for historical record purposes. It's nice to have the intact versions with the uh, copy protection. And I guess that brings us to our weird gaming section. So 
so uh, this is, I guess, a new segment now officially. As we, uh, in case anyone, yeah, in case anyone hasn't been paying attention, uh, we've kind of decided we're gonna bring more gaming content back into uh, into the show, and uh, rather than just talk about Choplifter and Load Runner endlessly, even though we could certainly do that. Uh, it uh, might be Those games suck. Yeah. It might be fun to uh, dig deeper into the catalog and find some of the uh, weird stuff. So, uh, Mike, why don't you start? Because this is really interesting. Tell, tell us about Dirty Harry Adventures. No. <laughs> yeah, so I added this little item to the spreadsheet here. And, and um, this, is, this is a game called uh, Dirty Harry Adventures. And I can't... I think it was actually just written by some guy in his bedroom and spread around the the pirate boards. I, I can't imagine that any company would want to have anything to do with this. And if they found out that one of their programs had done it, would have immediately fired him. It's a, a it's not even really a, a text adventure in any sense of the word, other than that there's text and no graphics. But it's just a you're presented with a scenario. It starts out with the woman being raped. And your sh- your choices are to you can shoot the rapist, you can shoot through the woman to hit the rapist, and it, it just keeps getting worse and worse. And basically, if you don't choose the the absolute worst option, um, the game ends because you get caught by the, by I guess the other cops or killed or whatever. Wow, it's rife with grammatical and spelling errors, and, and um, which makes me think that like a junior high wrote this thing, and and we've all. <laughs> We haven't all done something like this, but we've all ri- written little things that, you know, never got, you know, maybe got passed around to our friends and never got any further. What What's surprising to me is I had a copy of this through some stuff I'd traded as a kid and saw it once. And But it surprises me that if you go on to it's it's in the like the Internet Archive and there's the Virtual 2 online emulator. It's a disk image. This thing has spread itself everywhere. It's, it's <laughs> seems to be like part of the the oeuvre of actual Apple II games, and it just shocks me that, that this would have come out of that age at all. So it's it's racist, it's misogynistic, and, and crazy violence. But since this is weird gaming, that struck me as something that I should go, wow, that's really strange. That is, yeah, that's excellent. That's exactly the kind of stuff that we're looking for in this segment. But wow, that I my brain is still stuck on, you can shoot through the woman uh, who's being <laughs> raped, and then it goes downhill from there. So, yes. so that, was, that was the high point. That's wow. the start of the game. Now, if you if you boot the disk image and, and uh, control reset, uh, it's just a standard DOS disk, and and it's uh, like three or four AppleSoft basic programs, and it's not even you know there's no parser. You don't type anything in. It's just a list of it's a multiple choice thing from one to the next. You pick A, this happens. You pick B, and and so forth and so on. There's no sophistication at all to this, and so the the interesting thing to me, like I said, was that that this thing has survived. Yeah, definitely, definitely sounds like the product of angry teenage angst and somehow, yeah, somehow it got out into the zeitgeist and now it's archived forever. <laughs> Lucky us. Blows my mind. But Quinn, I think you have something more positive and uplifting to talk about. Yeah, let's, uh, let's, uh, spin that up a little bit and, uh, <laughs> get back into, uh, some quality, quality entertainment here. So, uh, mm. I think everybody knows Rocky's Boots. And in fact, we talked about it last month. It made a, also an appearance in, uh, Halt and Catch Fire. We talked about it in our Halt and Catch Fire segment. But what a lot of people don't know, uh, is that it had a sequel. For anyone who, if you, been on Mars for all this time. You don't know what Rocky's Boots is. It was this educational game where 
you uh, there was a column of of scrolling shapes uh, on one side of the screen, and you had a boot on the other side of the screen, and you had these uh, components that you stuck together. They were uh, logic electronics components, so OR gates and AND gates and things like that, and you would wire them up, and uh, depending on what the little detectors uh, that detected the shapes were doing, uh, you would wire up things to kick uh, the boot and knock certain shapes out of the column and so they used to solving puzzles in this way. So it was uh, an educational tool for teaching digital logic and it was really cle- really clever, really well done. A neat game that I think a lot of people have played. Then they went off and made a sequel which was just turned everything up to 11,000. It, it's called Robot Odyssey 1. Uh, it is in fact called Robot Odyssey 1. Uh, because it says right in the manual that uh, this is going to be the first in a series of adventures involving robots, and there was never a sequel. So uh, <laughs> nothing guarantees failure of a franchise more than naming the first game Robot Odyssey 1. But it is, in fact, a great game, and uh, it, it's much more difficult than, than Rocky's Boots. Uh, it sort of takes the same concept and builds uh, kind of a world around it. So you're uh, you're a little dude running around in these sort of maze-like environments in this underground metropolis, and you're trying to escape. And you've got this collection of robots at your disposal, so you're carrying around these robots. And at any time, you can put down the robot and climb inside it, and then it's sort of a Rocky's Boots-style environment inside the robot. And so the robots have sensors and thrusters, and you've got all these components to program the robots, and you sort of program the robots by building these circuits inside them to solve puzzles. And so there's various puzzles to collect key cards and defeat monsters and unlock doors and all these things to sort of navigate through the environment. So basically everything in the environment kills you, but nothing kills the robots. So you have to sort of use these robots to do your bidding through all the way through the environment. Uh, it's just, I can't think of a better sort of educational game than this. It really is fantastic, even today, you know. It is uh, it is challenging, so it's sort of like a early teens, maybe, level game. Uh, I certainly never solved it, but uh, it's fun to play even today. I mean, it, it gets really quite advanced towards the end. You can actually burn chips in the game, so if you have a piece of a circuit you want to reuse in other robots, uh, you can actually burn it into a chip, and then uh, you you find chips in the game, and you so chips, you cannot go inside them. So once you've burned it, you have to remember what it is and they have a little number on them, and you actually can find chips in the game, and you have to reverse engineer them to figure out what they do just by applying signals to the inputs and seeing what the outputs do. Uh, just maddening. Uh, and then some of the puzzles, I've since gone back and played it a lot, and some of the later puzzles that I got stuck on, now I see, you know, oh, they expected you to build, you know, a shift register here, or, you know, a ripple carry adder, or some, you know, pretty sophisticated things for teenage level uh, or kids game. So it's no wonder that uh, not many people solved it. So, yeah, it, it was a fantastic game, and one that I think very few people have heard of, and I think that's a real shame. So if you remember Rocky's Boots, you should give this one a try. It has a, it has life still today. There, uh, It's been remade. Uh, there's a Java version of it that a loyal fan has made. And, uh, oh, cool. Yeah, we'll link to that so you can play it right in your browser now. Of course, it runs great in Virtual 2. At the uh, at the risk of shamelessly plugging myself too much on the show, I uh, <laughs> actually also wrote kind of a tribute game to it. Uh, I wrote a puzzle game, similar idea. There's a series of levels, and you program. Uh, it's level-based instead of sort of open-world-based like the original was, but uh, you program a robot to solve a series of puzzles by building a circuit inside it. It's free, so, you know, I just built it for fun. I will link to that. It is uh, Mac and Windows. Yeah, I think that's, that's about all I have on Robot Odyssey. Uh, did you guys play it at all? 
Nope, never actually heard of it, but it sounds very cool. I'm going to have to download it and try it. Well, I'm glad you haven't heard of it, because that's the goal of this segment, is to expose people to the weird and wonderful underbelly of Apple II games. I could be remembering wrong, but I think Robot Odyssey was one of those games that, if you didn't have the instructions, it was very difficult to figure out. Definitely. So I had a copy and kind of played around with it a little bit, but being the, the inveterate pirate that I was at the time, I did not actually have any way to to really kind of learn my way around it. So it mostly sat in my box of discs waiting to be traded for, for Dirty Harry Adventures. <laughs> yeah, and the other challenge with it, yeah, that you, you raise a really good point. A lot of these games, you know, that we all pirated, of course, you, how much you played it or how good you, you felt it was had a lot to do with how well you could just figure out the controls. So uh, <laughs> by, I remember the first thing I would do is just, you know, press every key once and try to see what yep. they all did. Uh, so this was, yeah, definitely one of those games where that strategy would not get you far. Uh, in fact, it was sort of an early experiment with, uh, with GUIs. So you use the joystick to move your cursor around and select items and drag and drop them. And uh, so it was very much a graphical interface in that way. And there was a keyboard version of it. You didn't have to have a joystick, but the keyboard version made very little sense. Uh, so you were trying to kind of moving a cursor around with the like IJKNL or something like that and oh, and then yeah so picking stuff up and dropping it and there was all these modes to get around the fact that there was no mouse pointer because you didn't have the joystick so yeah with the keyboard it was nigh on unplayable so it's definitely a, a joystick game and so that definitely would have been a, a barrier to entry as well uh, yeah to look at it now is just incredibly bold sort of vision for what educational software could be I think yeah I think it's a crying shame that it never uh, got the traction it deserved at the time and I guess that brings us to our other new segment, the tech segment. Because we have no music here yet. Yeah, that's coming. I feel, well, I feel like I'm doing all the talking here, but... Uh, that's okay. I guess you do all the editing, I'll do all the talking. What a team. I guess Chris will will do all the guesting. I don't, I don't think that's, no that, that's a verb, but yeah. Just, uh, just smile and look pretty, Chris. I'll do that. So, yeah, in our new sort of tech segment that we're experimenting with, uh, hopefully people are enjoying this. I wanted to give a shout out to Jeremy Rand. So last time we talked about the Apple II development pipeline that I had built on with building on Carrington Vanston's work uh, in order to make it easier for people to uh, develop Apple II software on the Mac. And out of spite, of course. Right. Well, yes, the uh, the spite aspect was just sort of gravy on top. So this was uh, something that uh, that we talked about last time. And uh, so Jeremy Rand has gone and taken that and built on it again. As much as I like to think I'm better than Carrington, turns out Jeremy's better than both of us. So, oh, no. Yes, I'm, uh, I'm making the uh, not worthy bowing gesture right now, <laughs> but you can't see it because it's radio. So Jeremy has taken what I did and built sort of, he sort of generalized it all. So it's much more general purpose now. It's sort of easier to drop into any project. Mine was kind of like a, just sort of a simple example of how you could build such a pipeline. So his is one that you can take and drop into any project a little more sort of more general purpose. And on top of that, he did something which all previous pipelines have really been missing, which is a simple one-click installer for the entire CC65 toolchain. Uh, there's been no binaries available of it for the Mac platform. You can download a Windows uh, installer for it, but for Mac, it's always been you have to get it and build it from source yourself. And that's kind of always been the hardest step in the process of getting set up for Apple II development. Yeah, Jeremy solved that problem, which is fantastic. So he's got a really nice set uh, set of tools built out of uh, all this stuff, and we will definitely be linking to that in the show notes. Jeremy Rand has participated and won, I think, the last two Hackfests at Kansas That's Fest. right, yeah. 
and and done so handily mm-hmm. and it's it's really incredible to see the work that he that he is able to to come up with the creativity and and not just the code itself but the project that he's working on has always been neat you know next year I will definitely be expecting big things from him sure. it also crushes the hopes and dreams of little programmers like me who who wanted to win and never will now thanks jeremy <laughs> his uh, his version of uh, 2048 that he wrote was uh, for the, the last hack fest was fantastic the animations were smooth he used both text pages and uh, it was all written in c i mean wrote it all in the spare time between sessions so yeah it's it's, it's really great stuff yeah really great uh, chris have you you've been doing some apple II development now you mentioned you're you're hardcore you're doing a lot of it Right on the machine in Merlin, like uh, old school. Have you done any kind of cross-platform development as well, or uh, I have a, a little bit. Yeah, I played around with uh, writing stuff in a CC six CC sixty five. You know, kind of compiling in that. But uh, I haven't had much of an opportunity to really build anything, kind of like a game or anything like that. And I'd love to start doing that. You know, it's going to take me a while to get up to Jeremy's level. <laughs> I think. Yeah, maybe maybe by next Kansas Fest. <laughs> yeah, we should try out this pipeline. This this pipeline is kind of an an example of where the community really is at its best, you know, everybody taking something that someone else has built and just kind of adding to it and then putting it back out there. Uh, the whole point of it is to make it easier, you know, for someone like yourself to, to get in and, and start writing code. So, uh, yeah, you should cool. uh, give it a shot. Awesome. The other tech item I wanted to bring up is I've been developing some stuff and I've been doing some esoteric things with AppleSoft. And one of the things, if you're, you know, messing with uh, ampersand extensions or uh, modifying the parser or any kind of funky things like that to uh, get AppleSoft to do things it was never supposed to, you pretty quickly find you need to know what's going on inside. And there's, you know, documentation in books like What's Where in the Apple and some similar sort of books that have all the AppleSoft entry points and so on. But they're not super well documented as to as far as, you know, what's supposed to be in the registers when you call them and what's going to be in those registers when it's done and which registers get clobbered in the process and so on. So you can kind of muddle your way through trial and error. But uh, what you really want to be able to do is look at the AppleSoft source code. And there's some source, there's some resources out there for it. Uh, there's a couple of PDFs where people have created that have the source code. There's one of these paged documents, kind of like ScribD, which has the source in it, but it's sort of annoying because you can't search the whole thing at once. Uh, recently, I found this site called Jamtronics, and he's got something really awesome. It's the entire source code for AppleSoft on one page, so you can search and even better, it's actually cross-linked. So all of the uh, labels are all hyperlinks. And so you can jump around in the code just by clicking on these links. So we will have a link to that in the show notes. If you're doing anything with AppleSoft, it's huge. And the comments are all in there, and it's all nicely formatted and labeled. And just I can't imagine a better way to see the source code for AppleSoft. So I definitely will recommend anyone look at that. And, you know, like looking at the Prince of Persia source code, it's also just a great way to learn some cool tricks. Uh, You know, that source code is really quite good also. It's really tight and nicely packed in there. You know, AppleSoft does so much in so little space. It's really clever how the functions all kind of fall into each other. You know, no line of code is wasted if anything needs to be done by more than one function, then it functions are arranged so they can just fall into each other. And so it's, uh, yeah, it's great code to read. I can't wait to check that out. Yeah. So I guess that uh, that wraps up our first sort of official tech segment. Uh, if people are enjoying this, uh, please let us know. Drop us a line at uh, podcast at open-apple.net. We, uh, we love uh, hearing feedback from people. So let us know what these new segments you like, what you don't like, what you'd want to hear differently. Let us know. And if it's hate mail, feel free to send it to Mike. Absolutely. Personally, I think that, uh, that I'm, I'm ready to declare that section a, a resounding success. <laughs> Based on nothing? 
Right. <laughs> uh, we do have a correction to make from uh, last month's podcast and uh, well Quinn why don't you yeah I should uh, I should <laughs> I should I should, I should, I should repent here so this was my fault I misspoke uh, so we talked we were talking about rare eBay auctions and we talked about the uh, declock that was uh, recently went through eBay and I had said that uh, it was Sean Fahey's clock and that this thing was so rare that the pictures of on the, on the internet were all his pictures of his declock and turns out it's actually James Littlejohn's and I knew that I just misspoke so my apologies to James <laughs> for that uh, we updated the show notes in the last uh, show but in case anyone didn't didn't check that or whatever. We thought we'd better correct that here. So uh, uh, Mike is, as we speak, interviewing for new co-hosts because uh, clearly uh, he can't trust this one to get stuff right. Well, no, I'm actually interviewing for my replacement. So. Oh, I see. Oh, you're just like, oh, screw this. You're out of here. Is that? I'm sticking you with this show. Yeah, oh, I see. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's my punishment is sticking, <laughs> is, sticking yes. me with this show. What's it worth to you? Hold on to your wallet as we look at the latest Apple pickings. Uh, we, we talked last month about the Apple II Plus and the C drive a little bit. There was some a, a thread. There were a couple of threads going over on Apple Fritter, and it looks like Quinn, you found a two C plus on eBay. Is that right? Yeah. Despite our insistence that we don't talk about eBay stuff, we keep talking about eBay stuff. Uh, so this was another one that uh, was just so interesting. I just could not not mention it on the show. So and it also came up right before we're recording. Though of course it'll be long gone by the time this airs. So someone. Well, I don't think that one's selling anytime soon. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> At the very least, we'll link to the uh, closed item uh, afterwards because it is really neat. So it's apparently a. A 2C Plus prototype, and I think there was a lot of discussion on the Facebook group about it. Uh, the item was posted there, and a bunch of people who would know weighed in, including Tony Diaz, and I think the conclusion was that it was a legit 2C Plus prototype. Uh, there was hand modifications to the board, and I believe uh, the, the case was untextured, which apparently means that it uh, is an early prototype of the plastics, so... If, if, if I understood all the text in that thread correctly, that it is, in fact, believed to be a prototype. And if that wasn't crazy enough, it has a working C drive installed, which is that crazy expansion for the 2C that we talked about last month, uh, which replaces your internal floppy drive with a SCSI hard drive. And uh, there was uh, something, very few of them sold, and something like, five only known to exist or something and none of them work or something again one of these crazy rare things and here's this 2c plus prototype with one of these things installed and working this is yeah mind-blowingly rare i think they're asking five thousand dollars for it or something which you know good luck with that yeah i just think it's awesome that such a thing exists i uh, i suspect maybe actually someone put this together trying to create the rarest possible item because I, I i don't know why why would a 2c plus <laughs> prototype happen to have a c drive in it so I wonder if maybe someone happened to own both and put them together in the hopes of making something that they could get a lot of money for. I don't know. <laughs> maybe I'm being cynical, but uh, I'm a little suspicious. That, I mean, that sounds right to me. Um, I, I don't know enough to be able to look at something like this and immediately go, oh, the 2C Plus is a prototype. But it is missing the up in the upper right corner of the of the case normally where the where it says Apple 2C Plus in the, in the was it Garamond font, I think. Mm -hmm. That's not there. And then there's, I think there's a couple of shots, internal shots of the machine itself. So we have people who, who know better than, than I do and, or I guess than we do on the show can, 
take a look and go, oh, that's not a normal Apple II C+. So kind of a shame about the price tag, but neat to see anyway. Yeah, and uh, if if our opinion carries any weight, the uh, fellow who made the C drive, we would uh, still love you to remake that one day because <laughs> uh, it's a great item and we need more of them. Or release the schematics so people can make them. <laughs> Lend the lend the chips to uh, was it Anthony Martino over at Ultimate Apple II. He's good at cloning stuff and lend the ROMs to him so he can dump them and, and start producing clones. Yes, although I suppose we'd probably want an IDE version because uh, SCSI drives are a little harder to come by these days than they were at the time, and uh, that would also yeah. allow a uh, compact flash, which would be awesome. So. Well, I think that brings us to the end of another Open Apple podcast. Yeah, thanks for joining us on the show, Chris. It was great to have a, a guest host on this on, in the hot seat, as it were. Well, thank you very much for having me, and yeah, it was a lot of fun, and and I listen to your show every month, so it's great to be on it. I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> I'll send you links for some better podcasts. Okay. So thank you, Chris, and uh, thank you everybody for listening, and we'll see you next month. Bye, everybody. has been the Open Apple Podcast. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback by visiting us on the web at www.open-apple.net. Ugh. I had to turn off my fan and now I'm boiling. I'm sweating for Open Apple. I hope the listeners appreciate this.